Chapter 16. Stetchford. I arrived at Stetchford as an inspector in 2006 and was welcomed by my new chief superintendent, who I already knew from my time in the staff office. There were about eight uniformed inspectors at Stetchford, and they all had different day jobs. The inspectors were also required to take it in turns to act as a duty officer across three 24-7 shifts, which meant that they would generally be the senior operational officer on duty. My boss gave me my posting, which to my slight dismay was running the operations centre. This was the posting that the newest inspector was usually given. The op centre fulfilled many functions. Firstly, there were the communications staff who managed the deployment of officers to urgent and non-urgent jobs. Then there were the staff who dealt with routine telephone and email inquiries from members of the public, and another team who worked in the front office dealing with members of the public attending the police station for all sorts of reasons. Finally, there was a team who dealt with a vast array of bureaucratic admin tasks connected to data inputting to different police IT systems, road traffic accidents, wanted people, warrants, and God knows what else. In total, I had a responsibility for about 120 police officers and civilian staff. Today, most of these functions have been pulled together into larger corporate teams servicing the entire force. But in those days, every operational command unit had its own op centre. It was an unpopular posting because every op centre in every police station at that time was generally staffed by officers who could no longer carry out frontline operational duties. Many of these officers were classed as permanently restricted. Many of them had genuine medical issues and they were often frustrated and angry that they couldn't work on the streets, which is completely understandable. Some, however, were either a bit work shy or uncomfortable with confrontation, and had therefore been given administrative roles. They should probably never have been police officers in the first place, and the organisation would probably have been better off without them. So on the one hand, you had officers who bitterly resented being in the op centre because they wanted to be operational, and on the other hand, you had officers who would rather have been at home watching daytime TV. The latter group were quite happy to take their wages and do as little as possible. The net result was that with some notable exceptions, the get up and go of the op centre police officers had got up and gone. Ultimately, the centre was a massive moan fest for the inspector and sergeants who had the unfortunate task of trying to motivate the staff. I admit that I do not suffer fools gladly and it was not long before my patience started to wear thin with some of them. As well as being staffed by a mixed bag of police officers, at least two-thirds of the op staff were civilians, and this was a new challenge to me. I'd worked closely with civilian police staff for many years, but I'd never actually managed them before, so this was a bit of an eye-opener. Managing police officers is very different from managing civilian staff. Generally speaking, police officers understand that they're in a disciplined service and when a sergeant or an inspector asks them to do something, they know that they're not really asking, they're telling them. 
It's very, very rare in the police to have to order someone to do something because cops understand that when there's a job to do, regardless of how unpleasant it is, they have to do it. In my 30-year career, I think I only had to say the words, I'm ordering you to do this, two or three times. And that was only as a last resort when dealing with a particularly stroppy and uncooperative officer. Civilian police staff were a different kettle of fish altogether. Most of them were great fun to work with, but I had to draw on every ounce of my sometimes limited reserves of patience and good humour with some of them. They were an altogether more fragile bunch than the police officers I was used to managing. In the op centre, there was a drama of some sort or other almost every day. Some of these issues were work-related, but most concerned something going on at home that had spilt over into work. Sometimes I'd be dealing with things that made me want to weep. Here's an example exchange. Excuse me, sir. Uh, Julie keeps looking at me and it's making me feel anxious. Uh, well, why don't you sit over there um, where she can't see you? No, I, I don't want to sit near Barry because he picks his nose and it makes me feel sick. Or, sorry, sir, can I leave early today? I need to take the cat to the vet. His glands are blocked and he needs them cleared. Or, Sir, have you got a minute? It's about Sandra. I don't want to work with Sandra because she keeps turning the air conditioning on and I'm freezing. And I didn't bring McCarty to work today. I like it nice and warm, but then she gets all snarky and when I leave the room she turns the temperature down again. There was a particular group of individuals who, when I saw them making their way towards my office, I wanted to hide inside my filing cabinet or climb out the window to avoid them. They were the Olympic standard complainers who took it in turns to raise real or imagined grievances on a daily basis. Sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but the new chair I've been given has given me terrible neck ache. Uh, oh really? Uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing worse than having a pain in the neck, is there? But I'm confused. Isn't that the special, very expensive orthopaedic chair that you asked for and we measured you up for by, by occupational health? Uh, yeah, it is, sir, but I don't like it and I want my old chair back, please. And so it went on. At least 20% of my time was spent dealing with intractable HR issues, occupational health referrals, health and safety assessments, and refereeing childish disagreements between staff members. The poor old sergeants had a hell of a time trying to work out the staff duty rotas. It became like one of those puzzles you get in the Christmas cracker where you have to move all the pieces in the right order to make the picture because certain people refuse to work or sit near certain other people. It was a relief to be able to get out and about operationally with the response cops. I was able to do this when it was my turn to be duty officer and I was therefore in charge of everything that went on during one of the 24-7 shifts. Stetchford was the busiest operational command unit in the West Midlands Police and statistically one of the busiest in the UK. It covered multiple areas of urban deprivation and very diverse communities from large Pakistani Muslim communities of Small Heath and Alum Rock to mostly white neighbourhoods in Shardend and Sheldon. I'd never policed Birmingham before, and I'd never patrolled majority Muslim areas, so it was a steep learning curve for me. It took me a long time to get used to driving a police car around Small Heath and feeling 
very much in the minority from an ethnic and cultural perspective. Communities like Small Heath were incredibly different to the places I'd worked before. Thankfully, we had quite a few Asian officers who spoke Urdu, Punjabi or Farsi on our team, and I even had some of them on speed dial when I got into a pickle. Policing in the UK is an unbelievably challenging occupation, but the cultural diversity of the UK creates very specific challenges. It's not the same policing a largely rural or affluent Oxfordshire community as it is policing a deprived inner city part of London, Birmingham or Manchester. Yet every police officer in the UK receives broadly the same training regardless of whether they're going to be working in Borton on the Water or Brixton. Some parts of the UK are definitely harder to police and perhaps there needs to be more recognition of that in terms of the skills, training and even the remuneration for officers working in places like Smallheath. Smallheath was a challenging area to work. There were very high levels of crime and violence, much of which was linked to fallouts between rival drugs gangs. It was hard to communicate effectively with many people who lived in Smallheath because their English was poor or non-existent. And there was also a very male-dominated culture that made it difficult to speak freely with women and children who would usually defer to the male head of the household. Quite frequently, there would be an outburst of violence between large groups of men carrying improvised weapons, baseball bats and samurai swords. We would get there and find complete carnage, with cars ramming each other, blood everywhere, and everyone would immediately scatter. No one ever wanted to talk to the police and we would have no idea what on earth the fighting had been about. Generally, we'd get calls from different hospitals where the injured participants had been deposited, often with serious injuries or bits of them missing. We would go there and try and find out who'd done what to whom, but once again, it was rare that anyone would want to talk to us. We would later find out that it had all kicked off because of something like a disputed sale of a building plot thousands of miles away. Within minutes of receiving an angry call from Kashmir, the men from two rival families were out in the streets in Birmingham going at it hammer and tongs. The issues we dealt with in the predominantly white communities were somewhat different and included a lot of antisocial behaviour, drink-related violence and petty property crime. Many of these areas were pretty grim and riding unregistered, usually stolen, scrambler bikes and quad bikes dangerously to piss everyone off was a local speciality. Some of the pubs on these estates were dens of iniquity, about as far removed from a suburban gastropub as Alcatraz is from Chatsworth House. Picture a single-storey boozer with a flat roof and razor wire around the heavily graffitied walls one or two shady characters standing outside smoking joints, and the obligatory Staffordshire Bull Terrier Pitbull Cross with studded collar standing guard. Some of these pubs were generally the venue of choice in which drug addicts would offload their stolen gear. Such individuals were particularly good at nicking joints of meat, packs of bacon, jars of coffee and Gillette razors. I imagine this was similar to other parts of the country, as such products are easy to offload in these kinds of pubs. 
We also had Birmingham City Football Club on our patch, so Saturday afternoons and evenings could get quite lively, as the Blues seemed to attract more than their fair share of knuckle-dragging football hooligans from rival clubs around the country. The local derby between the Blues and Aston Villa frequently turned into a pitched battle outside the ground. It always amused me that otherwise law-abiding, sensible family men would go completely loopy and try to fight everyone after their team had lost and they'd drunk eight pints of lager. We used to have a small team of detectives whose full-time job was basically reviewing CCTV footage and identifying the worst troublemakers after every game. And in due course, they would be named and shamed in the Birmingham Mail after their court appearances. Late shifts and the early evenings were always relentlessly busy. Serious incidents happened more or less every day, and often several cracked off simultaneously. So you had to be switched on, be able to think quickly and keep a calm head. Most of the inspectors at Stetchford were super experienced and very helpful. I learned a lot from them. If you can work at a place like Stetchford in the police, I think you can work anywhere. A lot of ex-Stetchford people later moved to some of the most difficult and challenging roles in the force, as they were experienced with dealing with serious criminality, including murders and firearms incidents. Many years later, towards the end of my career as a superintendent, it was often ex-colleagues from my Stetchford days who would be asking me for surveillance authorities to investigate major criminals or organised crime gangs. My day job, when I wasn't dealing with constant moaning, was new to me, and there was a lot to learn regarding control room procedures and all the different IT systems. There were also tons of performance indicators that my department was responsible for delivering on behalf of the command unit. Every month, there was an audit of incident logs and crime records carried out by a department at HQ to ensure that we were compliant with the Home Office crime recording and data quality standards. These bizarre rules were clearly dreamt up by someone high on drugs, as they seemed to be designed to force every police officer in England and Wales to waste as much time and public money as humanly possible. If we failed this audit, the command unit automatically failed every other performance metric for the entire month as a punishment, and every unit was competing with each other. In my first month at Stetchford, I was blissfully unaware of this regime because my predecessor had failed to give me a proper handover. My temporary state of ignorance came to an abrupt end when one day the very, very pissed off superintendent barged into my office when he was told we'd failed the monthly audit. He let me know in no uncertain terms that I needed to get my shit together. The reality, of course, was that many of these police performance measurements were completely counterproductive and they created a catch-22 situation where hitting one target would almost certainly guarantee that you'd fail another. One day, about six months into my new job, my chief superintendent popped into my office and told me that we were going to be visited by Sir Ronnie Flanagan, the ex-chief constable of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. My boss told me that Sir Ronnie had been tasked with looking at police bureaucracy to make recommendations to the government as to how things could be improved and streamlined. When the day of his arrival came, 
I've prepared an extensive dossier of examples of the madness of wasted time and resources, uncooperative victims, in inverted commas, and pointless bureaucracy. Sir Ronnie was charming, and when I showed him this stuff, he sat and shook his head in disbelief and said that, unfortunately, it was the same everywhere he'd gone in the UK. He seemed genuinely determined to try to get the Home Office to see sense, and I felt hopeful that something might change. But of course, nothing changed. It just got worse and worse. Since that time, I've had quite a lot of dealings with the Home Office, and I now completely understand why nothing ever improves for policing. They have very little understanding of the reality of real-world policing, and far too many of them operate in a realm of Excel spreadsheets, pointless policy documents, and politically correct initiatives. I worked in the Op Centre for about 18 months, until eventually we got the news that a new inspector would be arriving at Stetchford. I made it clear that I'd done my bit and wanted a change. It was about this time that the force announced that it was going to be creating new multidisciplinary teams on every command unit to deal with child abuse, domestic abuse, vulnerable adult abuse and to manage sex offenders. These disciplines had always existed individually, but there was a need to professionalise and improve the quality of investigations. This development was in response to the recommendations from public inquiries into the deaths of Victoria Columbia in 2000 and Peter Connolly, known as Baby P, in 2007. In these cases, there had generally been poor communication between partner agencies, a lack of relevant and timely data sharing, and a tendency to give abusive carers the benefit of the doubt, rather than removing and thus safeguarding children at risk. Each of these new units was to be managed by a newly created detective inspector. I put myself forward for selection for this position, sat the interview, and was successful. Most of my peers thought I was insane. This was going to be a highly pressurised job. Many of the police managers who had been caught up in inquiries into high-profile child deaths had been dragged through hostile judicial investigations for many years afterwards. Not only that, but Stetchford had very high levels of deprivation and all the ingredients for a dozen similar tragedies involving vulnerable members of the community. If such crimes were going to happen anywhere, they were going to happen in Stetchford. I knew all this, but I was genuinely interested in this area of policing, and I believe that putting yourself into uncomfortable situations is often the best way to learn. I would also be trained as a senior investigating officer, which meant that I would be nationally accredited to investigate the most serious crimes, including murders. After a few weeks, I passed the op centre over to the new inspector and I scarpered off to my new job. As I was leaving the office, I saw one of the centre's serial complainers making a beeline for my replacement, and I heaved a huge sigh of relief as I closed the door behind me.